It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to Season 7 of the Chip Race. We'd like to thank once again our sponsor Unibet Poker for bankrolling another season. I'm David Lappin, I'm joined as always by Darrow Kearney and what a curtain raiser we have in store. Antonio Esfandiari is on the show and he'll be talking about his exciting career as well as sharing some choice anecdotes about the game's top players. Irish poker pro Nick Newport joins us too. He will be telling us all about the highs and lows of his turbulent career. By lows, I assume he's referring to his friendship with us. Nick will also be insisting that his hair is nicer than Antonio's. Mm, I'm not so sure. For strategy this week, we will sit down with Diva Byrne to discuss a hand from her recent Unibet Open Bucharest. From the news desk, Ian will catch us up on all the top stories and results since we've been off the air. Plus, I'll be asking him what the fuck he was doing in that recent televised PLO cash game. But first... Well, another Vegas is done and dusted. Hundreds of millions have been won and lost at the biggest festival of wealth redistribution on the poker calendar. For some, it was a profitable summer. For others, not so. Before I come to you, Dara, to get your take, I want to first play this hilarious clip from high-stakes piece Neil Farrell. Neil was with us recording a strategy piece. At one point, the conversation veered away from hand analysis when I asked him about his Vegas summer. Yeah, Vegas is brutal. It's the worst Vegas I've had. Like, even like last year, I didn't have that good of Vegas, but I swapped with people that did well and stuff. So, like, I still ended up up money and I was making runs and stuff. The summer was just sit down and you're fucking out in an hour every day for, for like eight weeks, which was uh, pretty brutal. I had a little moment like midway through, I was just losing my mind where uh, I was playing against this lady on my right, maybe like 50 year old lady, super nice lady. And, and she was just beaming every single pot and she was spending it hilarious and I was just cracking up. I, I was just getting to the point now where she'd bet the river and I would just hold my hands up. There was just like a straight flush ball at miss and I'd go, fold again, I fold again. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just absolutely losing my mind. But uh, now it was like, ah, it was whatever, you know, I mean. Definitely my losingest Vegas, but I mean, I won a fucking script before I went to Vegas, so it's not, I pretty much just gave that back, so it wasn't the uh, this is the super end of the world, but it was pretty frustrating. But this year, I called it like two days in, I'm like, this is going to be the year of the shit American reg, for sure. <laughs> and every bracelet was won by some fucking circuit moron, it was unreal. <laughs> Uh, it's like, I fucking told you, John Robert Balland won the fucking 5k 6 pack. How are you meant to compete with that shit? Like, you just can't, like, you should have just fucking went home when that happened. Yeah, the writing's on the wall, certainly, then. <laughs> shit. It's yeah. fucking breathless. Like, I thought Rick Solomon was going to win the fucking one drop. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was actually watching John Robert's heads up with Nina Stover at the groupie, and she goes, oh, this is, this is going to be easy for Dean now because he's only heads up against John Robert. But yeah, like you said, those guys just seem to be winning in every spot. Yeah, it was, it was honestly hilarious. It was so like, fucking Helmuth wins a 5k turbo. Like, fuck. <laughs> it was just meant to be this year. You know, you, they always have like the year of science and the year show that this year was just the year of the fucking dumpster on American Drag, like, for sure. <laughs> and I was just like, we had this like fucking conversation. I was like, every single hand I see, I was like in the group chat, I was like, see if you ever get check called on the turn by an American guy. Fucking all in river because if they have a good hand, they fucking check shop the turn. Every hand, I'm watching the, the updates on poker. <laughs> like, the turn is barreled and it's check shopped all in. The guys are fucking set every time. It's like if anyone calls you in the turn, fucking all in every river. Don't care how many chips it is. They can't. They, all their good hands are already all in. So you're fucking all in. Like 
Fuck these guys. Like, yeah, I, I, I did lose my mind a bit. Okay, so Tara, the year of the dumpster American reg, as uh, Neil put it there. Well, look, before we talk about American regs and maybe how dumpster fire their play is, at the beginning of that chat, Neil talked about having a bad Vegas. Now, he's obviously a class act and he sort of took his medicine with some gallows humour to boot. How do you kind of approach a Vegas? And if it's not going well, would you kind of fall back on the same kind of humour? Uh, no, generally, I just go back to the hotel room and drink myself into a stupor every night <laughs> I do have probably have a tendency to go into myself when it's running badly I've gotten better at not allowing the results to affect me too much I mean we spoke to Jared while we were in Vegas and he said that you know you just kind of have to get on with it and realize that it's the process that's important not the results and I, I very much agree with that and that's kind of what I try to do these days yeah, that's good advice. This year, of course, you, you did cash seven events, but you know sometimes it can be a case of cashing the wrong ones. Yeah, or, or, or more a case of that they're not really big caches. I mean, I had a couple of big shots. I mean, I ran deep in the online bracelet event, and I mean, I can't remember what the first prize was, but it was 300k or something. So if you get up near that, then it's going to be a good Vegas. When you bust out in 46th for four buy-ins, it's, it doesn't particularly help. Well, I mean, it helps, obviously, but it's not going to make your Vegas. Similarly, the only other deep run I had, one of the last events I played, I got down to the last 100 as well. Now, I didn't have a stack in that. And in fact, Poker News had reported that I had busted before the bubble. I was so short. <laughs> but, you know, you win a few flips and suddenly you can be right back in it. So, yeah, cash more than my fair share of events, but no really deep run. I mean, nothing, nothing last few tables even. And that kind of makes a difference. And then, obviously... The one thing about cashing the right event, I mean, the one tournament that you really want to cash is the main event because the main cash in that is significant. Well, speaking of the bad American regs, they're not all fish, to be fair. There are some very, very good American players out there, unquestionably. But what would your observation be as somebody who's gone back to Vegas year on year, watching them maybe deteriorate because they don't have access to online, maybe watching them improve in some ways because maybe they understand, say, that mid-tier reg who's not that great actually does understand how bad the American fish are and maybe they exploit them better yeah i think essentially I, I, I see america as almost it's it's been cut off from the rest of the world in poker terms now so it's on its own evolutionary track and at the start post black friday when online poker effectively disappeared from america what happened was over the next few years everybody just fell behind the curve and that included the regs and europeans were going over there and and literally every year almost every european reg was saying i can't believe how bad the americans are even the american regs and the european results in the period of the next few years after black friday were amazing and they really reinforced the view that america had fallen behind the curve but i think what's happening now is that there's such a large fish pool for want of a better term in America and the American regs are actually playing with those people day in day out and we're not we go over once a year to play with them so the American regs have very good strategies on how to exploit these weaker American players so I think that probably gives them an edge in terms of building stacks and tournaments they employ strategies which are very much designed to exploit the American recreational players which maybe you know the Europeans more and more are sticking close to GTO and maybe not exploiting the, uh, the American fish as much I think that's a fascinating observation actually what you said about a different evolutionary path I almost feel as though when I'm playing against an American reg these days I, I was sort of as a default over there in, in Vegas thinking okay well, how did I play in 2010 almost like how, yeah. what was the best way to beat the players from then because I think at some level we've been cycling in on or zoning in on or, or trying to converge on game theory optimal more and more in Europe and more and more in the online world because everyone's getting better so you have to actually get as close to game theory optimal to exploit other good players players whereas in reality when you're up against really bad players 
you know, diverging from GTO in a huge way is, is actually maybe the route to most profitability. Yeah, I mean, as an example, if you flash back to 2010, everybody see bet almost 100% of the time. You know, they, they read it in Dan Harrington's book, uh, when you're the preflop aggressor, throw out a bet and see what happens. And people overfolded to see bets, so it was a profitable strategy. Over time, people realized, wait a minute, if you're if you're see betting 100% and you're only hitting one third of flops, then, you know, if pe- people should be playing back at you more and people play back. So now the better European regs and even the better European recreational players know that you're not supposed to see about 100%. The American regs have gone on see betting 100% and it actually works because the American recreational players are still folding too much. So when we see these guys see betting 100% we think this is terrible. It's brainless poker but actually they are exploiting the fish. Yeah, so there you have it. Raise more, see bet more, and then triple barrel all the time. I guess that's a, that's a recipe for success for the next Vegas trips. Well, hopefully next year will be the year of uh, the readjustment by the Europeans who go out there. Yeah, maybe if this was the year of the dumpster American reg, as for all to say, next year it can be the year of the snooty European reg again. We're joined now by a former Irish Winterfest champion and fourth place finisher in the Estrellas Barcelona, the largest 1k ever held in Europe with 1.5 million in online winnings and three quarters of a million in live winnings. He is currently 31st and rapidly climbing up the all-time Irish money list. He recently had a deep run in the WSOP main event. He is, of course, our good friend, Nick Newport. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave and Dara. Glad to be here. I didn't realize that I'd actually only made about just over $2 million in what, an eight-year poker career? That seems pretty crap. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure there's been other cash game winnings uh, hidden away in there as well, but we won't tell the tax man about them. Uh, (laughs) Nick, I have to start with your hair. Strange way to start, I know, but... I know, I I knew this would happen. I knew this. (laughs) Uh, I know you're very proud of your hair. In fact, when I told you that you're on the same episode as Antonio Sfandiari, the first thing you said to me was you would beat him in a hair off, uh, whatever that is. Do you ever wonder how much better a player you would be today if you had put all those waxing and gelling and styling errors into your game? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) this whole hair thing has started because of Dara Davey, really. (laughs) First year we went to Vegas. And uh, we were staying in the same hotel room and more than a few mornings when we were getting ready to go play in the Rio, Dara would end up waiting like a few extra minutes. He's like, what are you doing in the bathroom? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just doing my hair. And he's like, how long does it take to do your hair? And yeah, it's kind of just cycles and stuff. But certainly if I'd have put as much time and effort into my poker game over the years as I had into my hair, I don't know, I could be, you could be getting a very different in- interview of me playing super high rollers and stuff, maybe. <laughs> well, Nick, like me, you started your live poker career playing in the Fitz Casino in Dublin. Was that where you actually learned how to play or were you playing online at the same time as well? How I first started playing poker was I started playing it in college. Myself and my friends would have like a five-year sit and go between about maybe seven, seven, eight, nine, ten of us once a week. And we just have a few beers. And that was my first introduction to, to hold them. And then, uh, obviously, at the time, I was the worst player in the game as I was just learning the game, and I had loads of, like, little tells and stuff like that, which the guys loved to share with me. Um, so then I found this... I can't remember what it was called. I found this site online that was, like, a free hold'em game, and it was kind of... You started off with play money chips, and you work your way up through levels. And I started practicing playing that a lot, and then progressed from there to playing in the jackpot in Dublin. That was my first live experience. I remember going in after a night out... I just happened to see the sign said poker and I just said I go in with, with 50 euro and uh, 
into a one-two cash game and just see how it went. I think I ended up winning small. I think I won like a hundred or two hundred. But to someone in in second year of college, that was a it was a good return for my first live venture, and I kind of just went from there. I just developed the bug like immediately. Yeah, a couple hundred bucks when you're in college is certainly enough to catch the bug. I think. Um, well, I mentioned at the top your Winterfest win that came in 2010, probably about a year before we first met. You were predominantly a cash player in those days, though. In the fits, like Dara said, I think I'm right in saying that you had 90% of yourself in that Winterfest result. What did this huge tournament result mean for your bankroll at the time? I mean, it increased by well, over 500%. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was that that was different. It was an incredible experience time. Like I was very young at the time. I think I was 20, I was 22. I wasn't, I was like a year out of college. I was only playing full time, maybe maybe six months, just grinding one, two, one, two, five, uh, cash in the fits. And, and I've been doing, I've been doing quite well the past four or five months. And then I remember actually saying to guys in the fits like that week, I was like, you're all playing for second this week, guys. I'm definitely winning this tournament. I just, <laughs> like, had to, you know, that, that, that's just stupid young you know live feeling you get when when you're that age you just think you're just going to just crush everyone when you're doing well and want to cash and uh but yeah it did actually it did actually come to fruition <laughs> and um yeah it, it definitely didn't change me too much at the time i probably continued to like play as much as normal maybe struggle with motivation a little bit for the first maybe month or two then after that i just settled into a pattern of just going back in and just grinding like every night and then uh, obviously transitioning to playing online more as well after that. Yeah, my memory of it was, I, I think I saw you a few days later in the fifth end of month, which I think you might have won as well. Uh, yeah, I did. I, cho- I chopped that actually. Yeah, yeah, it was like four or five days later. Yeah, went to a real mini heater. And then and then I think it might have been around the same time you won the Irish Poker Rankings final as well. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I won like a, like a 10K sponsorship, I think. Yeah, I remember talking to you at the fifth at the tail, you know, Obviously, every time you hear that some young luck box just won a lot of money and increased the <laughs> by 500%, you worry that's not going to last very long. And you were very sensible and said, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to be jumping into EPTs or anything. And then about three months later, I saw you in an EPT. <laughs> <laughs> it, was actually, it was actually much sooner than that. Uh, actually, I think EPT Barcelona was, I don't know, a month after I won the Winterfest. I think I ended up going to it. It was actually true, though. I actually had no plans to do that. I remember speaking to, I think it was Dermot Blaine afterwards, and Dermot was the one who actually encouraged me to go. <laughs> uh, I can't remember like what he told me at the time, but he just, I don't know, he just said, look, just go and take a shot, sell some action, and just see how it goes. And after playing the first one, I actually found that I was at a higher level than maybe I thought, probably just because of, I think it was one of the first times I played with like really, really strong competition, like where I had, you know, four or five really good guys at my table, guys who were better than me or guys who were as good as me. Yeah. From what I remember too, your your um, EPT career got off to a fairly auspicious start. I think you might have bubbled the first two. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. The Barcelona one, I think I was like maybe four off. And then Berlin, I think a few months later, I was maybe two or three off as well. You were three off. Yeah. I was actually yeah. at the table. But the, That's uh, right. The, you are. Yeah. The, 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 the bubble went next hand. Yeah. That was the, that, that was pretty sick that time. Uh, something that never applied to me, but something I've seen a lot of, and I know it's tough for a lot of young players, is families and friends not supporting their decision to pursue poker as a profession. A big result like the one you had often helps them. To understand or at least legitimize the decision in some way. A lot of our guests say that, like when I got my first big results, then my family were were on board. I also know you were very generous to family after the win. Do you feel like this helped them to understand your life choice? It definitely did make a difference for sure. Definitely the first kind of even even when I like I, I kind of kept poker a secret 
even when I was playing in college from specifically from my mother because um, I knew she wouldn't really like approve of it and but you know eventually she found out as I was playing here and there and but then when I actually went to do it professionally I think I remember at the time my parents were quite close to retirement and because I had taken up poker, I think they decided to keep the business open a little longer, just in case, <laughs> <laughs> just in case they needed to bail me out of a hole. <laughs> but um, yeah, one of the Winterfest that definitely did make a difference. My mother definitely kind of calmed down for maybe maybe a year, eighteen months, maybe two years, and, and certainly then after my first trip to Vegas went well, that kind of helped as well. I don't know, maybe, maybe say within 18 months, two years of that score, my mother would, would occasionally come to me with, oh, you know, I saw this, um, this job uh, advertised in the paper. Or, <laughs> or, oh, I see the army are recruiting. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, so, ma'am, you would rather me go to a peacekeeping mission somewhere like Lebanon or something and uh, get killed rather than have me playing poker. I, suppose, I was like, I suppose that would be easier conversation for you to have with our neighbors <laughs> yeah show what mammy wouldn't want that exactly exactly well nick through the early part of this decade you moved from being predominantly a live cash player to becoming predominantly an online tournament grinder what motivated that change and how easy was the transition what motivated it i think was just i felt like i'd hit a brick wall playing live i realized i don't know maybe over a year, 18 months after the Winterfest score that I'd kind of fallen behind. And I felt like there were a lot more guys around me now who were as good as me, if not better than me. So I felt like to get better, I need to be playing online more regularly. And that was kind of what motivated it. And how easy was the transition, I guess, like particularly in the early months? There was definitely a lot of adapting to do. From going to predominantly playing live cash to playing online tourneys was a big difference. There was definitely step up in competition as well i was online again like playing with guy you know a lot of regs who were better than me guys who were as good as me guys that had a lot less leaks that i had because i came from a live background so i think it probably took at least six to nine months before i was at a level where i felt like i was competing with those regs uh, as many of our listeners know jason tompkins dara davy david and i did some staking for a number of years and we called that collective the firm and we branded ourselves as a sort of a conscientious stable that put the emphasis on coaching, good game selection and supportive infrastructure. Most of the players we staked did very well through this period, which means that some people actually refer to us as a cartel, which of these statements is more true. I would more describe it as a creepy family. I think I, I, think <laughs> I described that in the past. It was like, though you are the, the daddy of the... Oh, here it comes. Oh, here it comes. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, let, let him finish, David. <laughs> uh, I know I've said this bit before, but a lot of your listeners might not have heard this. Lapin, I always refer to as the creepy uncle of the group. My recent and dance moves do nothing to... You haven't really done much to tarnish that image. <laughs> definitely, definitely <laughs> helped it grow. But look, when I asked you ahead of this interview, if there was anything you wanted to talk about specifically, you said, and I quote... I suppose it's a good time to talk about the real truth about how I managed to escape the clutches of the evil firm. So, uh, <laughs> I th- <laughs> really, it was just a case of me getting a very large bankroll together. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, I remember after I got the, the poor place in the Australis, and I think one of the first things I remember Dara saying to me was, are you going to go out on your own now? And I was like, I felt like I needed a bit more time under the umbrella. I'd learned so much from being in the firm. I think a real kind of 
lessons for poker that I really needed game selection and better bankroll management I think my bankroll management was decent in my early days but definitely could have been improved upon a lot and I think I learned to do better under that umbrella but I felt like at the time I just needed I, I liked having that support system and I wasn't sure because it had been it'd been about three or four years I think since I was out on my own and um, I wasn't sure how well I would adapt to going back out on my own because I remember when I first came to apply to you guys, I've been on downswing for about 12 months or more between online and live. I wasn't doing well. Like I said, I'd fallen quite far behind, I think, the curve at the time. And I was kind of concerned, I suppose, that maybe that would happen again. But I think one key thing I learned from you guys was a work ethic, was to put in a lot of time playing, put in time studying. And I think that was what I came to realize over the months afterwards is that I had the tools I needed to go out on my own again. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. We had a number of players who actually struggled with that. I remember after your big result in Barcelona, we were having a chat about you and Dara said, I think Nick actually might want to stay. And one of us, I can't remember, said, well, like that's kind of ludicrous. He's got more money than two of his three backers now. So (laughs) That was me. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't referring to you, Dara. But yeah, 2016 was an incredible year for you because my memory of it at least is you started the year You've been on a downswing for maybe at least 18 months. Um, yeah. And it seemed like an almost bottomless pit. But then in 2016, you totally turned around. You made six figures online. You were fourth in Barcelona for 200K on the final table that included former guests, Don Wilson and Chris Moorman. In fact, I don't think any Irish player made more money that year, certainly not in tournament poker anyway, which coming off the back of some lean years, that was really impressive. What do you think happened to provoke the exceptional turnaround? It was a few things. I think one thing you notice with a lot of poker players over the years, particularly the guys that fall away from the game, is that you gradually see that there there's no growth in their game, that they're just not staying with the curve or ahead of the curve. I think that was a problem with me for that time. I don't think I was improving fast enough. And I remember, I think it was around January or February of 2016, I remember actually being uh, over in Malta. My first trip over there to play, uh, I think it was the WPT Deep Stacks. And I remember talking to David and I was saying that I felt like, I just felt like poker maybe wasn't working out for me anymore. I just knew at the time that I was just very far behind the curve and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to catch up. So I said, I'm going to give myself maybe six months and knuckle down and just try, try and make some headway. And I think maybe coming to that realization that maybe seeing that there was a, there was an end to poker, I think maybe spurred me on a little bit more because I realized that I didn't want to not be playing poker. Mm. And I think that kind of gave me a motivation to just work that little bit harder, even more so than I was then. But I think I always put in a decent amount of study, but I don't think my study was, it was not good study. I think I was always a bit too distracted and uh, I definitely struggled with, with the downswings, the frustration of it, maybe playing a little bit scared at times. I remember just making that decision that if it's going to be coming to the end, I'm going to try and go out giving it my all and just giving myself the best shot to be successful at it. And I think that's what I did over the coming months. I worked harder and I think I just, I remember having kind of a light bulb moment maybe a couple of months in during my study work. I remember reading a quote from, um, I can't remember the top row, I think it might have been Timex, about how better high-stakes players stay ahead of the curve. And 
I remember thinking, I've always been trying to catch up, but what I really need to do is move ahead. So I started analyzing what regs were doing in a lot of spots and just finding areas that I could counter and exploit them. And I think what you saw then in the coming months was the fruits of that. That's really well put, Nick. Yeah. I think the combination of, as you say there, the sort of humility of recognizing where you are, maybe seeing the abyss of like, oh no, poker could be over, or I might make it anymore, and that kind of being a motivator. I, I, I can't imagine you, you, <laughs> you speaking to it better, and I'm sure it speaks to so many other players who yeah. have maybe been in that same spot, but maybe not reacted the way you did. Uh, credit to you. I'd seen it so many times, and I didn't want that to be me. And if there was anything I could do to not become one of those players who, who at one time was successful but then just fell away from the game because they weren't good enough, I wanted to make a good go at reaching the level that I felt like that I can continue doing this for a living. Because at the end of the day, I absolutely love this game. I always have. And I'm not sure what I'd be doing without poker. I still don't even know what I'd do in the future without it. But as long as I'm playing it, I'm going to put in the work and the effort. Again, because I'm really passionate about it. Well, you did eventually leave us uh, as much as maybe you, you showed reluctance, I guess, as you described us as a, a sort of a, a strange family. It's hard to fly the nest always. Uh, Dara Davy, I know, was very sad to see you go. Unfortunately, though, he expressed that emotion in a rather horrible way after you won the Siege of Malta after Barcelona. Can you tell us what he did? Yeah, after I'd won that, the Siege of Malta, I was, I was staying with Dara and Sandra that week and I got a very large oversized trophy for winning that tournament in Malta. And I asked Dara, would he um, post it over to me? Because I felt like I might not be allowed to bring it on the plane because you know, it had a lot of sharp points and might be considered a dangerous weapon. And it was the same time that I, I kind of expressed that I was going to be finally leaving the, uh, the weird family. <laughs> and, uh, and then maybe a week later, the trophy arrives at my front door and I open it to see that it's broken into about 10 pieces. <laughs> And that, yeah. Dara, cl- Dara claims to this day, it's like, oh, like we packed that really, really tightly. I swear, like, <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously, they must have opened the box. <laughs> no, I yeah. believe he packed it really tightly, but after he'd already smashed it. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably a more likely story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he broke my heart. Now I'm going to break his trophy. That's that seems fair. Well, Nick, uh, you, you actually lived briefly with me for a, a while when you were between houses. After you moved into a grindhouse with Carl Shine uh, and Derek Wall, Carl is somebody I would call the silent assassin of Irish poker. He's been one of the most successful online players for 10 years, very much below the radar, even though he's come second in a WSAP event and he won the European Deep Stack. How much of your continued success would you put down to having lived in a grindhouse with those guys? It definitely plays a part in it for sure. Specifically with Carl, I've always had trouble with kind of tilt control a little bit. Not not so much tilt control, but maybe just becoming a little bit too frustrated while I'm playing. And Carl is just always calm. He's like a robot. It's like when he's playing, he just doesn't feel anything. Mm. And it, it was quite a contrast between having him in the house and having Derek, because Derek is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a lot like when uh, the stories I've heard from uh, from Mongoose of when he used to live with Lappin. Ah, here, there's no need to be bringing that up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Derek is the Lappin of that group. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, Carl, I don't know, I can't, I struggle to explain Carl Shine to people. Things seem to work for him, but he's tremendously talented. He, like, he's been playing poker a few years longer than me, and he's consistently won year in, year out, and... 
I think what I saw from living with him is just, I think a lot of it is down to his mentality and that's something I definitely picked up from him. I try to be more calm and unaffected by what's happening in a session. And yeah, I think that's one of the key things I picked up from him. Well, David mentioned your deep run in Vegas. On top of the World Series in, in the Rio, you also had a last two table finish in a Venetian deep stack. When you do Vegas in the summer, how Rio-centric are you or how important do you think it is to chase the value elsewhere? I think it's important to chase the value elsewhere. I think you can just find, you can find a nice balance. When I was looking at the schedule around you know, April time, there's just so much to play every day at any buy-in level from, say, maybe like three or $400 up to 2K, which is kind of what I was looking at. But to me, winning WSOP bracelets is not terribly important. I mean, for me, it's not any more important or prestigious than winning, say, a Venetian deep stack or a win event. I definitely think it's important to get out of the Rio during Vegas and look for value in tournaments elsewhere. Because the Venetian and the win both have very good tournament schedules during the summer and they're very well structured as well. And prize money is as good, if not better, than some of the 1Ks and the 1500 events in the Rio. And plus, I feel like I've noticed over the years being in Vegas that guys that spend too much time in the Rio tend to go a little crazy. Yeah, I think that's really sensible. Uh, Finally, Nick, I want to ask you about poker in Ireland. Our sponsor, Unibet Poker, are in the process of partnering up to... (laughs) Unibet Poker uh, are in the process of partnering up to have some events in Dublin and maybe elsewhere in the country. On one side, I feel like the game is contracting worldwide and I don't really see a generation of players coming up behind you in Ireland. I guess, you know, the, there's a cluster of guys in their late 20s and then there's not too many guys in their early 20s. On the other side, however, I feel like we all made our careers in this game through a global recession, one that particularly impacted Ireland, of course. What's your take on the state of Irish poker and its future? With regards to the state of Irish poker right now, I think it's, it's kind of found a happy medium. I feel like it's appealing to the recreational players who don't want to play a lot of 501k events, which we would have had on the schedule maybe four or five years ago, but Mm. still want to play for big money. And I think the tour operators here have found that balance within the past couple of years, running 100, 200 quid games with large guarantees. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Well, Nick Newport, it's always fun to have a close friend on the show. Your career has been quite the roller coaster, and it's been nice chatting to you about that. To Antonio, I guess the gauntlet has been thrown down. Hair off at noon? Anytime, anyplace, anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks, Nick. (laughs) No problem, guys. Thanks. And back from holidays, it's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, it's good to be back. Let's start with the big news from Unibet this week. We have formalized a partnership with the International Poker Open. That means we're going to be hosting 30 euro satellites every Sunday with sub feeders to that 30 euro satellite for a fiver that'll happen every night so the players can try and win their 300 euro seats to this event in Dublin on the 24th of October. Now, this event is a bit of a monster. It's seen over a thousand entries in the past. So make sure you get on those satellites so you can come and join us. Yeah, certainly looking forward to playing this one myself. Nick O'Hara, who obviously does fantastic work all across different strands of the poker world. He's a great tournament director, great poker organiser, and of course his K-Hold'em software. Little plug for you there, Nick. Is used by many casinos all across the world. But anyway, the IPO is Nick's baby this year, and he's been kind enough to join forces with Unibet, which is fantastic for us. Means there are satellites on the schedule, like you just said. And yeah, I'm looking forward to going home to Dublin for a weekend and playing that one. It's always a really popular event. In fact, before the Goliath came along, it used to break all the records year in, year out for record attendances. Happy days. Uh, moving on to the Russian side of poker, uh, the Triton Festival saw some giant scores. 
Amion Hada won the high roller for 756,000 bucks, and Ivan Liao won the super high roller for 1.1 million bucks. Pavel Andriano managed to beat Patrick Antonius in the 10k heads up for another 280k. Anatoly Filatov was the eventual winner of the main event for a cool million quid. Congratulations to all those players. Yeah, all those guys winning unspeakable numbers of rubles. Amongst them, of course, our guest on the show this week, Neil Farrell, who was going for his quadruple crown, something nobody has ever done before. Unfortunately, Neil ended up coming, I think, 14th, but a tremendous run by him nonetheless and certainly breaks the barren spell he's been having recently. Yeah, good for the former guest there. Congratulations. Shame he couldn't get there for the first place finish, but I don't think that's the, is going to be his last shot at a deep run in one of the millions events, not by a long shot. Moving on to the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Open. It saw some big results. There were 29 players earning six-figure caches throughout the series. Notably, Irish pro and former guest Mark McDonald won event number 21 for $119,000. Big congratulations to Mark there. Another notable result from that series is the 500,000 bucks Elio Fox won for winning the 50k buy-in Super High Roller. Yeah, savage results there by those guys. Gotta say, Mark McDonnell, delighted to see him post another marquee result. I know it's sort of a monkey on his back that he had no legit first place titles. He had a few small side event first places, but never took down a proper event of that nature before. So I'm delighted for him. Also, shout out to fellow Irish pro Gavin O'Rourke, Gavinator, who managed to win a small side event at that festival, hopefully covering a lot of his buy-ins. <laughs> Happy days. Uh, last thing to mention is the Brighton UK Tour is coming up with satellites running on Unibet, of course. Day 1A of the Unibet UK Tour in Brighton will be on the 28th of September. That starts at 5pm. Nice start time if you have work to worry about, so you can lay bread if you need to, so you can still get into the action. Day 1B is on the Saturday at 3pm. That'll be on the 29th of September, so make sure you can attend that one. Yeah, another Unibet event on this weekend is the DSO in Goujon Mestre, just outside the lovely town of Bordeaux. Alex Henry will be bringing his phenomenal tour to that little town, a little hotspot for poker in the south of France. And of course, Alex is going to then bring his DSO to Malta for some poker in September. So looking forward to those. We have to mention the mega stacks as well, though, Ian. Oh, yes, yes. Very important. That was a phenomenal effort by those players who made the final table, wasn't it? It was indeed, yeah. Congratulations uh, to the winner, obviously. Yeah, the winner yeah, yeah. did particularly well. Uh, yes, he the or she was superb. I think they really um, yes, yeah. they played good poker and they ran well. <laughs> should we uh, should we should we stop bullshitting? Should we come clean? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think probably people have pretty much realised uh, we are recording this before the event has reached its denouement. <laughs> Actually, before I let you go, Ian, I just have to ask you one question. You were on holidays last week. We missed you. Dara Davies subbed in. You went to the Cash Game Festival in the lovely sunny beach. Now, I say lovely with uh, maybe uh, an ounce of salt. How did you enjoy that experience? It was really mixed. Like, Remember, these are our partners at Unibet now, Cash Game Festival. They go to lots of lovely places and Sunny Beach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of people love Sunny Beach. That's where they go because loads of the players love it. It's just me and you who are fucking snobs who don't like it. In all fairness, it's sunny and there's cheap beer, so that's great. The only reason I wasn't totally comfortable is because I had bad experience with the food. Okay, we know, nobody on this show needs to know about your guts. Why don't you tell them about how you got on the poker tables? <laughs> You know, that's actually a more grim story. <laughs> okay, we want to, we go back to the good story then if this is too unpleasant. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the Cash Game Festival was so much fun, despite the fact that I did my bollocks at the cash tables. I had an absolute blast. 
They organize a really slick event. There's loads of action going on, and they're really generous with the extra giveaways, which was actually kind of to my downfall, because they give a 1,500 euro package to the next festival, to whoever wins the most big blinds on the feature table throughout the weekend. You punted pretty hard for that. (laughs) The last session was fucking PLO. (laughs) <laughs> and no one had that big of a lead. So we ended up playing a 5k pot that I got riveted in. <laughs> so that was fun. That was fun. Congratulations to Kevin Malone, by the way, because he was the, the beneficiary of the 5k pot, which included the 1500 package. Uh, but yeah, in all seriousness, I can't wait to go to another one of these cash game festivals. Hopefully somewhere where the food doesn't disagree with me, though. <laughs> Okie dokie. Well, we will see you next week. Thanks very much. Take care, dude. For a strategy segment this week, well, before we talk about the hand specifically, we have in the booth Diva Byrne. Diva, welcome back to the Chip Race. We haven't spoken to you in a little while. Oh, hi, guys. Really nice to be back and uh, thanks for having me. Well, since we spoke to you last, there have been some Queen's Rules events. I just want to talk quickly about those. Uh, Unibet have been hosting them to great success, to maybe a little less success. The Goliaths wanted to host one, a really, really big one, actually. It would have been a few weeks ago in Coventry, but it never happened. Can you tell us what happened? So, yeah, my friend Katie, she's an ambassador for Grosvenor. She approached me with an uh, intention to introduce Queen Rules concept to the ladies event the latest championship we are going to have for the first time as a side event in the Goliath. So we agreed on that and once it's been announced we had some interesting feedback from the people who not even played the event before that we thought it's too complicated. Although it's like it's really simple and straightforward literally swapping the rankings. Queen is higher than the king so yeah you got pocket queens which is higher than king so ace queen is higher than ace king so and so on. So I guess people are just reluctant to change in general. We, when we're used to something we kind of I would say you know not, not too open-minded to new initiatives maybe. Sure. Uh, so it was a little bit of a challenge you know lots of arguments going on online and lots of comments Yeah, just people, you know, boycotting, saying we're not coming and not playing because, you know, it was announced, you know, perhaps a little bit too late, but, you know, it's not always possible to announce those things far in advance because of all the corporate, you know, decisions and dynamics. So I think the saddest thing for me was to see that people having a go at my friend Katie. Yeah, Who was was promoting the event, but... Exactly, but the decision to announce it one week or so before event, I'm sure it wasn't hers. Sure. And people seem to like literally just take it all out on her. And yeah, it was not fair for sure. And Absolutely. No, I think Katie's a fantastic ambassador for the she's game. She's amazing, and, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was horrible to see the, the sort of the Facebook threads grow and grow with more people giving out about it. But you know what? Baby steps maybe introducing the concept of Queen's Rules. You know, not a lot of people know about it in the poker world yet. We've mm-hmm. been pushing it pretty hard with Unibet events and hopefully if we continue to do that maybe next year at the Goliath or at other events they'll do it. That's the thing you know like events we ran in London and Malta it was like very successful and we have 50 plus members and the ladies you know like even who not played poker before live we were like very quick to understand and learn the game you know like you know a small change to the rules and we absolutely enjoyed it and loved it and it was like actually an extra fun dynamic to the game. So I was very surprised that people who not tried the game before, they were so negative about it. And all the people who played it were obviously positive, so it's like two groups of people, but obviously, like you said, more people who not tried the game. So I guess my mission is like going forward to try and uh, change their perspective on this. 
Absolutely. Well, a big part of that mission, of course, are the Queen's Rules event at the Unibet Opens a few weeks ago. We were in Bucharest. We saw you run a very successful uh, Queen's Rules event that included, of course, Molly Bloom, who was a guest on the show just a few weeks ago, too. At that Unibet Open event, that brings us to the strategy piece, finally. You did have a very interesting hand midway through, I think, day one. Would you talk us through that hand? Uh, sure. Uh, so I think we are playing seven to big blinds deep, and it's a full table of nine people. The guy in the cutoff, who's been opening a lot... And he's definitely on a more aggressive low side. And I free bet him a few times with... Nice put manners on him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I free bet him a few times. I think like three times and he always folded to me. So I look down now. I'm on the button just behind on his left. I look at King Queen off. Uh, and I decided it's like a nice hand to call. I don't need to free bet because there's so many hands in his range that are weaker. And I don't want him to fold it out necessarily because he's been folding out a lot to me. So I thought I can just peel and position and play it nicely post-flop. So I call and big blind comes along as well. So three way to the flop. Flop comes queen seven seven, two spades. And I have king of hearts, queen of diamonds, so no spades for me. Big blind checks and the initial opener bets 50% of the pot, which is like fine. So I, I call and big blind folds. Yeah, so far so good. I think it's um, it, it's very much a standard line pre-flop. Although one caveat to that, and I want to bring Dara in now, is that Diva mentioned there that she had a very aggressive opponent who was opening a lot of hands. So he's loose and he's aggressive. And she's put manners on him by three betting him a few times. I love that she switched gears in this hand. Another very strong holding king-queen offsuit, obviously. But it's a hand that flops really well. You can really realise your equity in position here handily. And it might also just be a different way to skin this cat. You know, if you had maybe three bet him again, he could four bet you. And actually, it wouldn't be a great hand to kind of have to call a four bet. You probably have to call it. But now it's it's a, it's a deeper pot. So yeah, I really I like how you've you, you've switched it up with the pre-flop dynamics. Dara, how would you kind of sum that up? Yeah, King Queen is one of those hands that you sometimes three bet and sometimes flat with. It works better as a three bet against tight ranges because it doesn't play great as a flat. If you three bet it against a tight range, you are blocking a lot of the stronger hands in the range like Ace King, Ace Queen, Kings and Queens. So you have a decent chance of getting a fold. If you just get called, you can start to rule out some of those hands from the range as well. Um, and you kind of take control of the hand. So against a tight range, it makes a very good three bet. Against a loose range, it doesn't make such a good three bet because we can get four bet light. So if we get four bet and we always call, we could be in trouble if if the four betting range has us crushed, which the value part of it will. If we get four bet and fold, we can be getting exploited if he's four betting stuff like he is four suited, etc. And to be honest, the three bet doesn't achieve the same as against a tighter range because anytime they'll fold, they had a worse hand than ours. Yeah. So all we're doing is that we're folding out the king nines, the king eights, the queen nines, all those types of hands that we're actually in great shape against. So yeah, I, I definitely like the decision to flat preflop. Yeah, and then on the flop, I think, pretty standard. Nice to see the big blind go away. Obviously, he has a, a decent amount of sevens in his range that could cause trouble. So once he's out of the equation, you're probably in station mode, I'm guessing. Although, maybe depending on the runout, things can get more complicated. So how did that runout go? So the turn was four of spades. Okay, so um, another spade. So three spades now on board, and he checks. Okay. So I think I have both options. I could check behind to induce river bluffs, and also I could bet for value like getting value from not many hands but probably uh, ace of spades most of the time which he could be checking as a trap because i think if he had like mate flush or a queen the decent kicker he should be betting for protection and for value so i guess yeah i'm getting paid by warriors queens and ace of spades i decided to check so i wouldn't necessarily get 
Czech raised by him because he's quite tricky, post-flop and creative guy and quite splashy. So I thought if he Czech raises and when barrels like the river big, they'll need to fold. Yeah, it strikes me that if you check back here, it could look like you have a small pocket pair that you've been sticky with on a paired board. Yeah. And that might give him reason to think, oh, I'm going to go out and represent that queen now on the river. Dara, when you're balancing up your range there from Diva's point of view, how often would you go for the maybe kind of controlling bet on the turn that will probably buy you not facing a bet on the river or at least charging a spade, a one spade hand versus how often you would actually check that? Yeah, again, this is very similar to preflop in the sense that you can go either way and Mm -hmm. it has different merits and demerits against different types of players. If this was online, I'd be looking at the check raise stats of the player. If he almost never check raises, then I'd probably go ahead and bet. But if I expect to get check raised quite a lot, I would tend to just check behind. There are two types of players in this situation. There are relatively straightforward players who won't bluff the river if they miss and if you check behind. And therefore, you're better off betting the turn against those types of players to either get value from their one spade hands or to deny equity to the one spade hands if they decide uh, not to call because they're not going to bluff the river anyway. But against a more aggressive player... I mean, there's only one card to come anyway. So if they if if they have the spade, they only have roughly a 22% chance of hitting that on the river. But that type of player will often bluff once you show weakness on the turn. So against that type of player, I prefer to to check with the intention of calling a river bet. Okay, well, onto the river. Maybe you can take it from here, Diana. Yeah, and the river is an interesting one. It was three of spades. Ugh. So I mean, it's not it's not the worst possible card, but also not the best. Because now backdoor such as 5-6 got there. But I wasn't too worried about it because I thought he would have continued not return with those hands for sure. There's no way he's ever checking a 5 high or, you know, 6 high, 5-6. Obviously, I'm not loving the spade. But at the same time, again, I was thinking if he's got like a hand with one spade, which is not strong, he would bet return as well. So it's kind of like, yeah, it was an interesting card. Kind of like looking at it, you'd think, oh, it's a bad card. But when you like start logically thinking about it, it's actually not a bad card. So Frio Space comes in and he bets 70% of the pot. Yeah, I think Diva summed up really well there in, in the sense that it's bad that we see a spade yeah. because it means a lot of hands have overtaken us. However, at the same time, it probably emboldens him to bluff more. So our plan to bluff catch the river, as it kind of was on the turn anyway, is now given even more merit. I think the only combo I'm worried about is actually a sex of spades, which already got there on the turn and he's possibly checking to induce and now betting big for max value. That's literally the only hand I was worried about. Yeah, if we look at the profile of this player as an aggressive player and, and we think he might have bet the flop with nothing, that type of player, if they pick up equity on the turn, is going to fire again. Mm-hmm. So if he, if he had a spade, I think he would almost definitely bet the I turn. I agree. So uh, like Diva said, it's, it, the only time he might slow down is if he has a made flush on the turn and now he wants to get value from Montserrat. He's going for a check raise. Well, trying to, to let me get there, you know, by picking up more equity. You know, yeah. If I just like floated on a flop or, you sure. know, myself on some kind of draw. Yeah, I think the mistake a lot of people make in these cases when boards run out super scary, like there's four spades and we don't have the spade, is they think, oh my God, now my hand is absolutely yeah. rubbish. But like when there's four spades on the board and our opponent has a reasonably wide range, they have a spade less than half the time when you consider that there are only nine spades left in the deck. So you have to think, well, they have the spade just from pure randomness less than half the time. And then how consistently is it with the way that they play this hand? And I think when you break down this hand, it's very unlikely that they would uh, check a, a spade on the turn unless it is a made flush, which again is just a tiny part of a very loose range. So... I think given the type of player that we're up against, um, we have to expect them to bluff a lot and they will usually be bluffing. So putting the pieces together, tell us how the hand finished up. Well, I did still take my time. I was like leaning towards a call more or less like immediately, but I still took time, uh, you know, to observe him and think about it, like, you know, go through the hand in my mind. And yeah, he looked quite edgy. He really did look comfortable. (laughs) 
And so, yeah, I just made a call and he showed Jack 10 off. For no spade at all? That's For just, nothing. Yeah, that's a really random bluff. I mean, just if we, Jack high? Yeah. If we reconstruct the hand from his perspective, the flop seabed is kind of loose, but I guess he has a backdoor straight draw and it's a yeah. hard board to hit. So it's not the worst seabed. Exactly. It, it's but solid. it is probably just a little bit loose. You probably need maybe something else to go with your backdoor straight draw. Even having an overcard is useful. Like if like King Jack is a much better hand there than than, than Jack Ten because if you hit your King, you're you're probably going to be good mm. against the calling range. He turns no equity, so he presumably just gives up on the hand. So it's actually if we bet the turn, he just folds. Yeah, and that's the totally. end of the hand, yeah. And we don't we we actually don't make any more money. Like a lot of times you review these hands, and you know somebody gets there on the river, and then people berate you for letting them win the pot mm-hmm. and losing that way. But that's a good point. But yeah. you can also get more value from people who are going to bluff a lot, and as as David did in this case. Then he gets to the river, he has the worst possible hand. Diva has shown weakness on the turn by checking and he goes for the bluff. It's probably a little bit ambitious against somebody who can hand read very well but because he I, can't credibly rep a spade. Yeah, to give him some That's credit yeah. to give him some credit, I think he has probably recognized a spot where you can push someone off, push a weak player yeah. off the hand. Yeah. But he, he obviously chose the wrong person in you diver. You snapped it off after yeah. giving it of course a little bit yeah. of consideration. I think against somebody who doesn't hand read very well, this bet will probably work quite a lot. People will just go, Well, I don't have a spade, so I have to fold. But yeah. also, you know, before, you know, sometimes you, you know what you're gonna do more or less immediately because you had a plan all along. But even when I have this kind of like plan, I always like to take my time to observe a person, you know, and see how they look and feel. Because when we re- reveal the hand, when you call, so it's kind of interesting to look back, see how we looked in comparison to the next time when we bluff or have a value hand. So I would always suggest people to do that as well. Of course, you are known to fold flushes on the river sometimes. <laughs> I, have, I, I do recall maybe like... And from maybe this time last year, where you managed to fold a, fl- a flush in, maybe not an identical situation. So, uh, you know, how, how, yeah. how would you weigh up those two situations differently? I guess people definitely think I'm crazy because I folded <laughs> to you, you know, like, uh, you know, backdoor flush that got there. And then I called the guy with like no flush. <laughs> and and I was tearing you up and down like like for five minutes and I couldn't get anything of you. So you yeah, definitely like got you got no live tells in my <laughs> eyes. With you, it's like very complicated, yeah. I never know if you're actually playing it off or you're for real. But yeah, it's a different situation because it's different how it went post-flop and also I know that you are a very capable player as well. You're capable of value shoving and, you know, bluffing there. Whereas like this guy, I never I never thought he had a really strong hand, so... Yeah, well, returning to the theme, I guess, and thank you very much for saying that, but I, I do feel like you sized up your opponent really well there. You talked about how you sort of picked him off with three bets beforehand. Yep. And I think, you know, this hand really shows thematically how you can take these passive lines against guys. You can be a calling station and just sort of pick off the bluffs in the right spots. And it's actually yeah. a really good way to kind of exploit this particular kind of player in this particular kind of spot. Yeah, I think every hand is very individualistic and it's always about, about table dynamics and the player. You can play exactly the same hand in a different way against different people. And well, thank you so much, David Byrne, for popping in again. I hope to speak to you again later in the season and thank you as usual, Dara. Thank no, you. thanks a lot for having me. We're joined now by one of the biggest names in poker. He is sixth on the all-time money list with two WPT titles, three WSOP bracelets, including the biggest ever prize handed out for a single tournament when he won the 2012 $1 million buy-in one drop for $18 million. Not bad for a predominantly cash game player who has played the highest stakes in the world for over a decade. He is also the poker crush of longtime supporter of the show and one of Darren and my favourite people, Donna Morton. He is, of course, Antonio Esfandiari. Antonio, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. 
Who's got a crush on me? What, what was that? We have a long-time supporter, a lovely lady by the name of Donna, who definitely uh, holds some feelings for you. Hello, Donna. <laughs> How do you do? <laughs> well, Antonio, as I'm sure most people know, your poker moniker has always been the magician, a call back to when you worked as a magician prior to poker. I know there was a two-year period where you were all in for magic. Do you have a good magician story you could start us off with? I mean, I, there's there's a lot of magic stories. I remember being, uh, I was 18, I believe. I was at a restaurant having uh, a bite to eat with a friend of mine. And I remember the bartender coming over and asking me what my favorite card was. And put a deck of cards in front of me. I stated my favorite card, which is and always has been the seven of hearts. And he pulled out this deck of cards and he goes through it. And it, just like any other normal deck, they're all face down. And as he gets close to the middle, one card is face up in the middle of the deck, and it was the seven hearts. I couldn't freaking believe it. And he turns it over, and not only is it the only one face up, but it, it's the only one that had a red back. All the other cards were blue. And so this obviously perplexed me. Being someone that was always fascinated by cards, even growing up as a kid, I begged him to tell me how he did it, and he wouldn't. I couldn't get the guy to crack. <laughs> and I remember for a few days, thinking about it. How in the world could this guy know what card I was saying? You know, even if it was a magic trick, how in the world did he pull it off? And then just a few weeks later, I was, I eat a lot. I was at another restaurant <laughs> and there was a magic store that had opened up in this brand new complex in San Jose called the Magic Hat. And I went over there after lunch and I said, look, this guy did this magic trick. I explained to the gentleman working there exactly what had happened. And he told me I could do that trick. I couldn't believe him at first. I had to purchase the trick before I was shown how to do it. And I learned it, and in just a couple of days I could do it. Believe it or not, it was actually one of the easier tricks in my arsenal as I became a magician. Anyway, I started doing that trick for people, and all of a sudden the reaction that I got from people and how good it felt to be able to trick everybody, that's how I got into magic. That was the selling point for me. And then I was hooked for two years, you couldn't see me without a deck of cards. Anywhere I went, I was practicing and trying to get better. Well, Antonio, your breakthrough result was in the WPT LA Poker Classic in 2004 for 1.4 million. And you've described that as a monumental moment in your life. Aside from it being a huge payday, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, those were interesting times. I wanted to be a professional poker player at the time. I was really into poker and poker was becoming a thing on TV. And so if you wanted to create a name for yourself, you really had to win a big tournament. And back then you could win a big WPT and all of a sudden everyone in the poker world knew who you were. These days, you know, you could win the main event and it's not enough. It's pretty crazy how much change there's been in the poker world and how many more poker tournaments there are. And so I, I knew that I needed to win something if I was going to have any success in the poker world. And, you know, talk about timing. I mean, I don't know what my life looks like if I don't win that tournament. I don't know what the trajectory is moving forward if I don't bank that one. Also, financially, I went from really having no money to having a decent bankroll, one which should allow me to move forward without ever going broke. So pretty monumental. I think it had more of an effect in my life than winning the one drop did.
That's really interesting. I, I like the point you make there about the, the the nature of poker. Now you guys were all turned into superstars at the time. It was it was pretty cool. I hope you don't take this the wrong way because I do mean it as a positive. But I've always thought of you as a, a bit of an old school hustler, even when you were like in your twenties. Whether it was press up bets, creating the game, lot and things, or generating any sort of side action, I guess, where you had an edge. It always seemed like you were a dab hand at work in the angles. Is this fair? And if so, where do you draw the line? It really depends on one's definition of the word hustler, right? Am I someone that's always trying to bet and get the best of it and make money? Yes. If that's what a hustler is, then for sure, by all means, call me a hustler. If someone is trying to mislead somebody and making a bet on something they already know without kind of putting all the information on the table, I think that's probably not acceptable. You know, I think that my moral code for gambling is is pretty high, and anyone that has ever done business with me or bet with me probably knows this. So it really just kind of de- depends on what your definition of the word hustler is. That's fair enough. Well, you took this side betting to the next level with your show Bet You with Phil Lack. Apart from the well-covered lunging bet with Bill Perkins and let's call it Bottlegate, were there any other bets that had unfortunate consequences or you felt, if you'll pardon the phrase, took the piss? Um, that was the lowest moment in my poker career. Uh, extremely embarrassed by what happened and obviously something I'd rather not you know bring to life again it was a very dark moment believe it or not in my life and I think I scaved out of it okay but while it was happening it was very very dark you spun a pretty big positive out of it I think it's fair to say yeah I mean it was the right thing to do you know it was very embarrassing and I thought about you know my kid growing up and hearing that story and it was just something that I I can't believe I did. You know, looking back, I think about how in the world I can make such a bad decision because I'm pretty good at making good decisions, especially when it comes to big ticket items. And that particular one has always haunted me. And I just can't believe I made such a stupid decision in in an attempt to win a bet. I didn't really think about the bigger picture. So, you know, I did what I could to clean it up as best as I could and I thought it was only fair if I took that money and gave it to charity so well fair play on that well Dara mentioned uh, Phil there Phil was our guest on the show last year and we actually neglected to ask him how poker's greatest bromance started would you mind telling us how you guys met yes it was at the world series of poker back when I was at the horseshoe and this is when I was playing poker but I was more of a magician than a poker player I, I used to go around the horseshoe and just do magic tricks for all the poker players and every time I went by a table, they would stop me and ask me to do some magic. And it was, you know, it was kind of cool. And I remember going by a table and they asked me to do some magic. And so they kind of stopped playing and I started doing some tricks. And I remember Phil Locke was sitting behind Gus Hansen watching Gus play. And I noticed that Phil wasn't really watching the magic. He was focused in on my hands the entire time, trying to see what I do with my hands instead of enjoying the magic. <laughs> so I actually, I actually cut it short because I didn't really like that. You know, as a magician, you don't want somebody just zoning in on your hands. You want someone that's enjoying the magic. So I cut it early and continued on moving around, whatnot. I don't know, about 20, 30 minutes later, there was another group of people that requested some magic, and so I started doing some magic for them. And all of a sudden, I see Phil Locke back in the little circle, zoning in on my hands. <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, who is this guy? And 
After the show was over, he came up to me, we started chatting, we went for a beer, and that night it was as if we had known each other for 30 years. I mean, it was just awesome. We had the best relationship, the best friendship. We hung out every single day, traveled to all the different poker tournaments. It was just such a special time. It was a really fun time. And that's, that's basically how it started until he met Jennifer and left me. So. <laughs> well, you're on record as calling Phil a donkey. I remember you giving him a really hard time when he was playing very passively against Dor. What do you really think of his play? Uh, can I plead the fifth on that one? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just, I love Phil. He's really good at beating bad players. And somehow he still manages to beat really good players too. I don't know how <laughs> he does it. Maybe there's a method to his madness that I can't figure out. I know that he has historically held over me big time. I mean, I just can't ever beat the guy no matter what I do. <laughs> so that's that. Well, most players playing super high stakes, as you do, of course, are, are backed or substantially pieced out, I, I think is, is fair to say. Now, they might have the game to compete, but when you hear stories of guys having, I don't know, like two, three, four percent of themselves in these huge buy-ins, it does feel like it's making a bit of a mockery of it. I often feel like much of high stakes poker is a bit smoke and mirrors in that sense. Like a lot of big sports teams, these guys are like almost the playthings of oligarchs and billionaires. I don't know. What do you think about modern high stakes poker landscape and how much backing swapping was there back in the old days of shows like high stakes poker? You know what? Honestly, I couldn't really tell you. I was never involved in backing or really swap i mean i you know i've done swaps with my friends here and there but it's never been like a big thing for me you know if i ever do a swap it's just for a sweat sure. you know two percent here and there with a with maybe a rast or you know not even phil phil and i i don't even know if we've ever swapped i think i asked him for a swap once 10 years ago and he told me no and i got <laughs> well he holds over you so bad you know yeah, I got pretty offended that Phil Locke said no to a swap, so that hurt. <laughs> and other than that, I really, I, you know, I don't know what people sell of themselves. I know what I sold to myself in the one drop. You know, I can only speak for myself, so I really don't know. When I play at a high-stakes poker after dark cash game, I have absolutely no idea what these guys are selling. And I, and I could care less. They got the money in front of them, so whether they have 80%, 2%, 90%, mm. what difference does it really make? David and I started out about 10 years ago and in Ireland at the time it was really frowned upon it was actually considered almost cowardly to to sell or swap action um, I, I don't know whether that was just a function of Ireland or if it was the same in, in other countries I mean has the have, in your opinion have attitudes changed towards swapping in the US uh, over the years in selling action there's never really been an attitude towards selling pieces. I mean, a lot of players just can't afford to play in a really big game where they can lose $500,000. So they protect their bankroll by only putting up 40% or 30%. I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's probably good bankroll management. Yeah. Now, if two people are in the same game and they're swapping 30 40% of each other, that's different. You know, then it becomes a situation where it could be unethical because it does affect the play. As long as this, if you swap with someone or you sell pieces, it doesn't affect the play with everyone else at the table. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Speaking of which, the recent chats about Christy Bicknell and her boyfriend, do you feel like, would you take the view, I guess a, a lot of pros came out saying, well, okay, it's okay for people to have these kinds of swaps, but they really should declare them to the rest of the table. Would that be a sort of position you think is right? I believe that if people are at the same table and somebody asks you should be totally forthcoming and yeah. truthful about what swap there is. 
So, you know, in that scenario, if they were asked, hey, did you guys swap and what percent when there's a lot of money at stake, I think that they should be forthcoming and say it. Now, I don't even know what happened. I just barely heard about it. Mm. Believe it or not, I don't know anything about the poker world. I'm not really <laughs> in tune. I usually have someone that every month or so will give me some gossip about what's going on with the poker universe. I really don't follow up. You know, I have my kids. I just want to hang out with my kids and be with my family so I could care less what's going on with the poker world. So, you know, I, I really don't know what happened in that situation. Were they asked, do you guys have a swap? And did they answer? I, what happened? I don't even know. Yeah, I think in that spot they they did explain uh, maybe three handed that they did and offered the guy an ICM and he didn't want to take it. But then afterwards, it seemed as though they soft played somewhat against one another. Well, I think they should be recognized for saying yes. They were honest, right? Mm. So that's pretty strong. I mean, I think that they have a, a moral obligation to be honest. So perhaps they shouldn't get credit for being honest. But kudos for saying that, yeah, they had a swap. And then offering an ICM swap is, I think, a pretty reasonable offer, right? Because, hey, look, this is my man or my lady, and we have a swap. And I think that what they did offering a swap is the right thing to do. Now, mm. the guy decided to not take it, and this one hand comes up where, you know, I don't really know how the hand went down. I heard it was Jack's faces and whatnot. I'd, I'd really have to see how the hand went down to see if I thought there was foul play. Sure. But... I think their intent was always good by offering the ICM chop and also letting people know that they had a swap. So they had a good intent. Now, whether the hand played iffy or not, look, sometimes you get caught in that situation where, yeah, you you don't want to soft play someone that you're dating, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you have some emotional attachment to their result as well because you care about this person that it could, without them knowing, get in the way of how they play the hand. So I think the guy should have just taken ICM and just call it a day. I want to go back to some of your own recent tournament accomplishments, including your, your biggest, of course. You've cashed five of the last 10 WSOP main events, including a deep run in the one just gone. And you've also cashed four of the seven one drops, which is pretty remarkable, including, as I mentioned at the top, the one million one that you won for 18.3 million. One of the things I imagine is hard is staying motivated. You mentioned your family there, of course, and, and, and kids. After you've accomplished so much, uh, how do you stay motivated? Well, I think that poker is extremely competitive, right? So it's not even about motivation. It's just you show up, everybody puts up their buy-in, and who doesn't want to continue to do well in whatever it is that they're doing? Nobody in golf or football or baseball or any other activity where there's a competition just says, oh, I've accomplished enough and that's it. It's never enough, right? We always want more, whether it's money or success or trophies. So I think it's just me being human. I want to win. Speaking of the World Series of Poker, you're one of the voices that's most strongly associated with, given that you do so much commentary on the on the final table. <clears throat> but it seems like every year when you do it, the, the haters come out in force, all the mid-stake ballers uh, chiming in on Twitter to criticize your commentary and also that of our former guest, Phil Helmuth. How do you react to the Twitter abuse? Do you think any of it is ever fair? Um, and how, how do you respond to criticism in general? First of all, was there a, a big backlash this year? Because I didn't really... I didn't see it on my Twitter, so if they did it, they didn't put my... No, Phil got it all this year. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, no, I know in the past there was some. I don't know if there was a lot this year or not, but you know what? At the end of the day, there's always going to be haters no matter what you do, right? 
if you are in a public space speaking basically on behalf of poker, right? Because ESPN essentially has asked one person in that moment to be in the booth explaining to the world how this stuff works. There's just no scenario where everybody's going to be on board. So you just have to accept the fact that you're going to get bashed once in a while. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said that it didn't bother me at all. It bothers me when it's someone that's close to me and it's happened and perhaps it could have uh, put a little strife in the relationship. But, you know, what are you going to do? You just accept it for what it is. You're going to get haters. You're going to get people that don't agree with your opinion. All I know is how I know how to play poker and how to explain to people how to play poker. That's all I know. ESPN has asked me to share that knowledge and information with the world. So I do as I'm asked. Do I think I'm the world's greatest poker player? Definitely not. Have I spent the amount of time studying poker as anybody that studied poker for more than 20 minutes? No. I'm just a guy that started playing cards years ago who still plays cards, who, when ESPN asks, shows up. My life is not poker. I love poker, but I have a gazillion other things going on, and I'm just not married to poker like a lot of these other guys. When I say that poker has gone in a direction where a lot of people aren't having fun playing at the table anymore, a lot of these guys get offended. But, you know, they show up and play like robots, take 30 seconds every decision no matter what, stare down their opponent, and who wants to play with these guys? I don't want to play with these guys. And I've talked to many businessmen who also said it's unbearable. You know, Rick Solomon, right? He went deep in the one drop. He's not a professional, right? He's somebody that you probably want to play in a big tournament with, right? Even though I think he's a very good player. I spoke with him and he, he was just, he just couldn't believe how robotic and annoying it was to play with these guys. He's like, I seriously never want to play in a tournament with these guys again, they just stare at you for no reason. They're so slow, it's unbearable. It's like, I had zero fun playing and I play because it's fun and not because I'm there to like be a professional poker player. And we just had a conversation about it. I, I even asked him, I'm like, can I share that next time there's a public forum for me to share it? He's like, absolutely. He's like, tell all those, I don't want to say the words you used, um, that if they don't tone it down, they're gonna drive away all the businessmen. But they don't care. They just want to show up and like be the guy that's unbearable to play with, and they're succeeding. So when I say that stuff on ESPN, a lot of them get offended. You know, poker's supposed to be fun. We mentioned Phil Helmet there a moment ago. You have a huge rivalry with Phil. It, it's very clear as well. Uh, I remember in particular that absolutely incredible poker after a dark episode when he blinded himself out and you were just ruthless to him. That made for amazing TV. But I would like to know what your true, let's call it, balanced feelings are about Phil and his game. Well, first of all, you won't believe this. Phil and I are actually pretty good friends and we've gotten a lot closer in the last year or so. I just went to his 15th bracelet celebration dinner He's probably coming over to my home on Saturday for a barbecue. Uh, I'm actually gonna see him tonight at another engagement. So outside of poker, we have a pretty good friendship. I have a lot of fun with him. He's a very special human being. He's very, very big hearted, right? He might come across differently on TV and whatnot, and certainly his antics are, you know, <laughs> they are what they are. But at the end of the day, he's a really sweet guy. Big ego, but you know, he wouldn't be where he is without his ego. So as much as we love to go after each other at a poker table, and trust me, I love when he's at my table because <laughs> it's, like, it's like the easiest pickings of all time. <laughs> um, we're good buddies. 
It sounds like you might have traded in one Phil for another there. I hope uh, Phil Locke's not listening and getting too upset. No, I haven't. You know what? I love Phil so much, Locke, but I haven't hung out with him in a long time. We see each other here and there, but, you know, when you have two kids, it's pretty tough to hang out with friends. And it's easy when your friends will come hang out with you, but it's difficult when you won't go hang out with your friends. And I try and not leave my family unless it's a work affair. So a lot of my friends find themselves coming over to our home. And, you know, we're pretty good hosts. We have barbecues. We have people over all the time. So I get Phil over maybe three times a year. You once said on High Stakes Poker that you wished it could be High Stakes Poker every day. Do you still feel that way or has family life made you switch focus? Um, Wait, I said what about High Stakes Poker? I wish I could play it every day. Yeah. Yeah. When did I say that? Uh, you actually said it, it on, on High Stakes Poker. <laughs> um, I love the show High Stakes Poker. Uh, it's just fun. It's, it's so fun to play a big cash game and just know that everyone's going to see if you're know what you're doing or if you're a ding dong. So I don't know, there's a thrill behind that. Do I wish I could play every day? No, of course not. I just want to be with my kids and the fam as much as I can. Family life is so good. You don't know it until you have it. You know what I mean? It's something I always wanted. Even back in my party days, I knew that someday I would end up here. And then when you get there, it's just so special. You know, I try and not talk about it too much to people that don't have kids because I I don't want to make them feel bad in any way, but I just hope that everybody that wants to have children gets to experience that level of love. Because you really don't know how much your parents love you until you have kids. I mean, the love I have for my two boys is like astronomical. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. And I don't want to miss anything. I want to see as much as I can. I want to spend as much time with them as I can. So that's kind of where I'm at. Well, that's a pretty cool attitude. Okay, to finish, we mentioned at the top your poker moniker, The Magician. Nicknames aren't as much of a thing now in poker, but to be fair, they were a great way of marketing the characters in the game back when you started out. I'm going to name a few modern poker players who don't have nicknames, or at least none that I know of. On the spot, can you try to bestow one on them? You ready? Sure, but I'm probably going to pass on a, on a lot of them. First of all, there's a lot of players you'd be surprised. I probably don't know them because I don't follow poker. Okay. Fair so, enough. And you can you, you can just default call him a robot, maybe. <laughs> I don't really want to call him a robot on a broadcast. Fair enough. Right? I don't need more enemies on Twitter. And, <laughs> you know, most of the nicknames I, I would give would probably be a bit tilting to the person receiving them. So, again... I probably don't want to tilt anybody. So we can play the game, but you're not—you're probably not going to get a lot out of me. But let's go for it. Okay, easy one to start off. Fedor Holtz. I actually like Fedor. We've had a couple of good conversations. Uh, you want a funny Fedor story? Yeah. That'd be great, yeah. So this is a couple years ago at the um, one drop, the 100K one drop. Fedor's at the table. I'm playing, and some guy shows up and gives Fedor to. 25k cranberries and this is when Fedor was super hot winning everything right but you know and I, I didn't really know Fedor that well I just assumed he probably wasn't the kind of guy that was going to flip for 50k and I'm not it's not really something that I want to do all the time either you know it's a pretty big flip but I figure you know what somebody needs to set this kid straight right so let me just let me throw him on the spot here at the table see how see how it goes so I'm like, Fedor, you wanna you wanna flip for that? I'll give you a hundred bucks to flip for that. Thinking he's gonna say no, right? <laughs> I kinda wanted to try and maybe big time Fedor at the table. And 
he starts like thinking about the hundred dollar juice I was laying. It was like a hundred bucks. <laughs> So of course he wins the flip, and now you know not only do I lose fifty, I'm so tilted because the kid completely owned me. It was so beautiful. I I always tell the story about how he really up and kind of kind of bitch slapped me as I properly deserve. So kudos to Vader. <laughs> fantastic stuff well look I'll, I'll do a quick rundown of a few of these other guys if you want to throw a story in instead that work, that works as well Duke Polk um Jason's lover okay yeah. <laughs> I don't know Phil you know, I'll tell you <laughs> so again I don't know anything in the poker world right but as I get moved to a table with Jason and Doug I get a text message from someone that feeds me gossip and says, you probably don't know this, but Jason and Doug, this is what happened. And they're telling me about the time that Doug had him as a kind of a fish on a sticker on the computer or whatever. While Jason was playing, Doug was broadcasting and had him. Yeah, bad reg. Bad reg or whatever. <laughs> and so, of course, I can't help myself. I have to bring it up to them. And, <laughs> I bring it up to the table and I start discussing, you know, that incident and ask Jason if Doug had perhaps apologized and I basically bring it to fruition and try and have this whole conversation with both of them. And I remember Daniel being at the other table just laughing his ass off that I was putting these guys on the spot because it was, it was a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> them, you know, but I just couldn't help myself. It was such a good opportunity. Okay. Phil Galfond. Phil Galfond. Um, I like Phil a lot. He's one of the more, how do I describe him? He's just a, he's a good dude. You know, he's super good, but he's not like a robotic, annoying player. He's a bright guy. He'll banter with you if you want. I took him out to a nightclub about 10 years ago. The guy never went out. And I remember I was with Tom Dwan and I'm like, I'm getting Phil Galfon to go out tonight. He's like, you have no chance. And I got him to go out and he was out late drinking and it was awesome. That was one time in Vegas about 10 years ago. Nickname, I don't really have a nickname for Galfon. Just legend. Uh, Joe Ingram. Uh, Joe Ingram, I like him. Um, I was on a show where we did some filming for Poker Go and he was great to work with. He's a really fun guy. I don't know him that well, but I like him. Is this the show where you were pole dancing? I think I might've watched this. Yes, this is the show where I was <laughs> Um, I only got a couple left. Scott Seaver. Uh, Scott Seaver. Well, uh, he's the one that went after me pretty hard on Twitter. So, you know, I wasn't too thrilled about that. But he did apologize, and I accepted his apology. No nickname. I, you know, we've been to Burning Man together. I'll just leave it there. Fair enough. Okay, and last but certainly not least, uh, right now and anyway, uh, Justin Bonomo. I'll just say Horseshoe. Horseshoe, yeah, that's that's pretty apt right now. Well, Antonio Sandiari, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. It was fun. Thank you. Well, in honour of Antonio, we're going to end the show with some magic, playing us out this week from their 1968 album, The Second. This is the great Steppenwolf with Magic Carpet Ride.
Neil, Nick, Diva and Antonio Next week we'll be joined by the poker producer behind Poker After Dark Face the Ace the National Heads Up Championship High Stakes Poker the World Series of Poker and the High Roller Bowl Yes that's just one person It is of course Poker Hall of Famer Maury Eskandani Until then from Dara Ian and myself Good night and good luck <laughs>